Welcome. Good morning. It's a good thing Minnesotans know how to deal with ice because we got a lot of it. Uh, Eric, do you want to start us in prayer? together here for prayer and for understanding your word and sitting under the means of grace. I pray for Bob today as he helps us understand the book of Acts. Lord, we do pray that we would have understanding of what you've done for us through your son. We pray that you'd help us to persevere into the final day through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get to the next slide. It's 13, 13, and 14. So Paul had been in on the island of Cyprus. Now, I don't know if you can see that. I brought my laser. I don't know if it's going to do any good. Right there is where we're leaving from, okay? And where they're going to is there and then up, okay? So from Cyprus, they're leaving and they're heading to uh, Pamphylia, which is where they're going to land right there. And then they're going to do a trek up to Pisidian Antioch. So it says in Acts 13, 13 and 14, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Pergia in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, there's a couple things going on here to know about, so we understand the narrative of Luke Acts. In this case, as I've said many times, the geographical designations that Luke has are accurate. They're true to the real world that we live in. The Bible is historically accurate and it keeps getting more and more confirmed. And it shows you how foolish it is for people to not believe the Bible. A lot of the really bad theology that created theological liberalism came from the 19th century and that was before archaeology really got going in the 20th century that proved that the Bible was accurate. They were thinking, well, we better save the Bible from historical fact because it might get proved wrong or it has been or scientists can't believe it. But since the 19th century, what's been proved wrong again and again and again are liberal claims. Okay? So it turns out that we can believe the Bible with the same or better reliability than any other historical source and that things that we do know are collaborated. But also notice here something that happens that will be picked up later in the book of Acts. And this is for us to try to understand but it said John left them. Now here, it doesn't really make a comment on why or what or whether it was a good or bad thing. It just said that it happened. 
But this is going to be discussed later in chapter 15. And there it said he deserted them. So it had a negative connotation. Eric, do you want to look up Acts 15, 37 to 39 and read that for us? It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn them from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Which is where this started. The, the, the translation I have here says he deserted them. So there was a negative going on that's not commented on here yet. So be alerted that this is going to come up again. Uh, and let me cite uh, Peterson, who has a commentary on Acts. Without further comment, says Peterson, Luke adds that this is where John left them to return to Jerusalem. The seriousness of this departure is not signaled until 1537 to 39, where Paul refuses to take John with Barnabas and himself on a return visit to the towns previously evangelized. The reason given there is that John had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. The part of the simple apocoresis, 1313, can have the milder sense of left or more negative sense of abandon. The latter sense is clearly brought out in 1538 with the use of another participle, apostanta, describing John's one who deliberately deserted them. Luke waits for the appropriate point in the narrative to make this clear, though he does not explain why John left the work so suddenly. So the kind of things happened that still happen today. The humans are humans, and they got their own things going on. And it wasn't paradise during the book of Acts. There were issues, there were disagreements, there were personalities. And like that, all the more reason why we need to be so grounded in the gospel. And elders and preachers and church leadership really need to have a clear concept of what needs to be done always, what God called them to do, and to stay focused on the gospel and the word of God and caring for the flock and guarding the flock. Because no matter what, as you go forward, there's going to be things that happen. There's going to be personalities. There are going to be people leave for reasons that you can't always figure out. And there's going to be problems. You can count on it. Always, always, always. And really, Luke doesn't say a whole lot here about what was going on. The other thing I've learned after a lot of years is you have to keep looking forward and getting a grip on what God's called us to do. Because frankly, if you try to assign blame to everything that happens and seek for retribution or whatever, it really gets to be miserable. People that think that way have a real hard problem. 
because reality is complex and we can know what's true and false, what's right and wrong, but we don't know the inner workings of the human heart. It's hard to figure out what even what makes our own selves tick. And you know, if we think we're going to figure out everything to make somebody else the way they are, it's not that easy to do. The better thing to do is stay focused on what we know is true and stick with it. I know that whatever else is wrong with me, God will use the truth of the gospel to save those who will believe. And whatever else can happen, absolutely, the word of God needs to be taught with purity People need to be prayed for and protected and the word of God taught. And in the process, there'll be a lot of different things that happen. And that's the way life is. So that's the point I'll make out of that. Even the apostles had difficulties to deal with. And we all will. So they ended up in Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch than where this whole mission started. And they went into the synagogue on a Sabbath day. So they would customarily go to a synagogue. Now, there's a reason for that. Paul was certainly a Jewish leader before he was converted, and he's certainly still Jewish. And they had shared customs, shared languages, and a shared understanding of the Old Testament. We'll see how that comes out in his sermon. So they start where... They've got something in common, and they go to the Jew first, but they also go to the Gentiles. So let's go to verses 15 and 16. And then it said, after the reading of the law and the prophets, now this would have been what they do in the synagogue. The synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, now here were some visitors from out of town, okay? Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now this is, then we'll begin Paul's speech, which is one of the longer ones recorded in Acts at the synagogue in this uh, Pisidian Antioch. So he's starting with a synagogue meeting a normal weekly gathering and we'll see what he preaches i have i've done some analysis of the sermon that he preaches but i was going to again quote from peterson um and we might wonder why it would be that this happened the way it did that they just invited him to speak but we find out yet again that that's true to the kind of history and situation that they were really in. That's not even extraordinary. Now, if you want to look up the geographical data that's available, I have it here, but I won't go through all that. Uh, wanting to get on to the, to the sermon, but again, you can see exactly who was in charge, what the geographical and political boundaries were, what was happening, and so on in the Roman Empire. It's all factual, and it all helps us understand the, the literalness of the book of Acts. 
Now, talking about other sources, one would be Josephus. Peterson said Josephus records that that there was a substantial Jewish population in the city, which helps to explain why Paul and Barnabas went there immediately after landing at Perga, a journey of about 100 miles. However, if Sergius Paulus, who was proconsul Cyprus, had family connections in Pisidia, Antioch, which some scholars propose, then it was possible that, they, that he influenced Paul and Barnabas to go there first. On the Sabbath day, they entered and sat down, taking their place with the others. And then they had the reading, and then they spoke. Now, I did some more research, because I have a lot of the ancient sources in my library, including Philo, who was a, a Jewish, kind of a mystic, but a Jewish teacher that was a contemporary of the apostles, Philo. And so let me just read that to you, because I want to cement in our hearts and minds that these things are exactly how it was. These aren't fables. This is how life was, and this is how they function. Now, here's Philo, a Jewish writer, saying this. Accordingly, says Philo, on the seventh day, there are spread before the people in every city innumerable lessons of prudence and temperance and courage and justice and all other virtues during the giving of which the common people sit down, keeping silence and pricking up their ears with all possible attention from their thirst for wholesome instruction. This is Philo talking about synagogue service. But some of those who are very learned, explain to them what is of great importance and use. Lessons by which the whole of their lives may be improved. So learned people would give lessons in the synagogue to help them live virtuous and prudent lives as Jews in the synagogues in the Roman Empire, according to Philo. Now, let me go on. And there are, as we may say, two most especially important heads of all of the innumerable particular lessons and doctrines, the regulating of one's conduct towards God by the rules of piety and holiness, and and the second one, of one's conduct toward men by the rules of humanity and justice, says Philo, Philo, each of which subdivided a great number of subordinate ideas, all praiseworthy. So they were learning how to live before God and men in an honorable way, in a synagogue. Another little chapter. From which considerations is plain that Moses does not leave those persons at any time idle who submit to be guided by his sacred admonitions. But since we are all composed of both soul and body, his lot to the body, such work as suited to it, and the soul has such tasks as are good for that. And he has taken care that one shall succeed the other. So there were people that would come and would teach, and there were instructions that would be given. So Paul, or Saul, was somebody who had come, was a uh, articulate Jewish spokesperson. And, of course, these people don't know about Christianity. And so it's not extraordinary at all for him to be asked, if you have anything to say. If you have a word, let's hear what it is. Because that's what they did in synagogue. 
They heard words of exhortation. They, w- they want to know about how to live godly and pious lives. And so that opens the door for Paul to preach to them. And what we'll see here, as we go to verse 17, he be- begins with the God of Israel and the fathers. Okay, so he's going to rehearse Jewish history, and in so doing, he'll end up at Christ. But he starts with what some analysts have pointed out as they look at his process of speaking, was that a good speaker will start with shared premises. Okay, so you have an audience. What are some things that the audience would share with you in your thinking that you could start with so you get them listening? A shared premise. So when Paul starts by saying, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, there would be no one in the synagogue that would disagree with that. That's what made them distinct. That's what made them a minority people in the Roman Empire. They were descendants of the fathers. And they shared with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the fact that they received promises, they were a special people, and they were a unique people. And throughout their history, they had suffered mightily for having that status. The very fact that they were chosen by God it's always resulted in them being hated and persecuted. That is an unending story that goes on to this day. Do you know that? Why is it that the Jews are hated? Why do people hate Israel? And a little bitty country in the Middle East with no innate riches or oil or status is always somebody wanting to wipe them off the face of the earth. And this has been the case. And this happened in the Old Testament. You read the story, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, various enemies that attacked Israel. Intertestamental period, you had terrible things. Even when they got power, they abused it themselves. And had people like Antiochus who tried to kill him. It was a Greek. And then you had Alexander Janus. Remember, I quoted all the people he crucified. And then, then you had the Romans who decided to curry favor with them by building that temple, the second temple. And so, but then it's never long before there's another pogrom against the Jews. 70 A.D. and 135 A.D. And so it goes in history. But here, because Paul, or previously Saul of Tarsus, was Jewish and well-versed in the Jewish scripture, he has an opportunity to speak in a synagogue. And he starts with this statement, God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it for a period of about 40 years. 
Then it says he put up with them in the wilderness. They wouldn't have disputed that, but it wasn't exactly a Dale Carnegie approach. <laughs> God had to put up with us. <laughs> okay, the, the, the theme is God chose us, and then we made it difficult for God because we didn't want to serve him. They all knew that was true. Now, what I did, I was, again, going back over this last night, looking at all my data, because I did a lot of this a long time ago. And I have here, I printed out Paul's entire speech or sermon, if you want to call it. All right? I have the whole thing here. So if you, I, I, there's no way this could be a slide. It would be microscopic. But turning your Bibles to Acts 13, 16, it's 16 through 39. And what I did, I was showing this to a couple of people before Sunday school. I printed out the entire thing, took a red pen, and I went through it. It circled every time it says God did something. What is the action of God, and how often is what God did mentioned in Paul's sermon? So if you get to your own, I'm going to read this, and we're going to start counting. I've already got the number, but you can just see it for yourself. Here we go. Verse 16, we just read that. Verse 17, the God of this people chose our fathers. Number one, God chose the fathers. Made the people great during their stand of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. Number two, he chose them. He led them out. You could also say he made them great, unless you want to include that with the process of choosing them. Verse 18, for, four, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them. That was the third action of God in the wilderness. Verse 19, he destroyed seven nations. Another action of God. In the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance. Another action of God, all of which took about 450 years. Verse 20, after these things, he gave them judges. Another action of God, until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, they asked for a king. Let's just stop here at that point. I'm giving you a little overview before we do this in detail in the coming times that I teach Sunday school. Notice God chose, God made them great. God led them out, but then it says he put up with them. The implied thing was they were rebellious in the wilderness. Well, we know that, right? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to appoint a leader to bring them back, and they would complain about the manna. And then we go on and much more things God did. And then in verse 21, it says again what they did. They asked for a king. So far, the two things they did were bad. They made God put up with them, and they asked for a king. And we know from the Old Testament that wasn't a good thing. They ended up with Saul because they were rejecting. Remember back in the Old Testament, they were sent to Samuel. They rejected me from ruling over them. So in the wilderness, they rejected Moses. It's God's choice to lead them. And that turned out badly. And here they reject uh, God as their king, and they asked for and so God gave them Saul. So, so far, God did a whole bunch of good things, and they did two bad things. 
God gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Verse 22. After he had removed them, another action of God, verse 22, he removed him. He raised up David. Another thing God did. Okay, he removed Saul, raised up David to be their king. Concern who he also testified, another thing God did, he testified, said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who do my will. So he did something good. He gave them David, who would be a good king, who would do God's will. Right? Okay, verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to promise. Notice that word there. If you underline in your Bible, promise. See that, 23? That's a theme. We need to understand the significance of the idea of God making promises. Everything about our future hope depends on God who acts and God who promises and God who keeps his promises. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now he goes all the way to this son of David, this king who would be raised up, who is the son of promise, son of David. Verse 24, and after God, John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance, another theme, by the way, to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, verse 25, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Verse 26, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God. So Paul's addressing them as his brothers and God-fearers and so on. To us, the message of salvation has been sent. That's another action of God. I'm at 12 right now in my counting. 12 actions of God. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning them. Now look at that, verse 27. Now here's something they did. So so far, I'm counting that. One, two, three. So I'm at 12 actions of God and three actions of Israel. The three actions of Israel so far God had to put up with them. They asked for a king, contrary to God's intent at that time. And they fulfilled the negative promises from the prophets that their own Messiah would be rejected. So three things they did were bad. The 12 things God did were good. All right, let's go on. Verse 28, though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. That's four. They fulfilled the negative prophecies of rebellion, and now they want Messiah dead. That's four that they did. And when they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. There's another action of God. I have that at number 13. Verse 31, and for many days he appeared, again, this is the action of God in Messiah, to those who came up 
went in from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise. There's that word promise again made to the fathers. So we have the action of God, fulfillment of prophecy, promise, the rebellious actions of men. Let's go on. And verse 33, God has fulfilled this promise. There's the promise again. That's the number 15. I'm counting the actions of God. To our children that he raised up, number 16, Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Scriptures fulfilled. Verse 34, as for the fact that he, that's number 17, action of God, raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken, action number 18, in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Scripture quoted. Verse 35, therefore he says in another psalm, another action, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. So scripture's fulfilled. See, Paul is starting with shared premises. God chose our fathers. And they knew the fathers had been rebellious. But he's also going back to their scriptures saying this was all predicted in the Psalms. Brother Brian. Um, Very similar to Acts 7 when Stephen addresses the uh, high priest. Uh, Difference being they killed him. They killed Stephen. Yeah, exactly. So, verse 35, Psalm quoted, showing why Jesus had to be raised because he was the only one. and God wouldn't allow him to undergo decay. Verse 36, Acts 13. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers underwent decay. So David underwent decay. So you can't say David fulfilled the promise. Now earlier in Acts, remember, his tomb is still amongst us. So it has to be somebody else who was raised who didn't undergo decay. So this is a theme in Acts. Verse 38. Verse 37. But he whom God raised, action number 20, did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. So the preaching of the apostles is considered an action of God. That's action number 21. And verse 39, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. There's the point. Isn't that amazing? So here in this long sermon narrated by Luke in Acts 13, Paul emphasizes, let me just summarize what's going to be emphasized, and we'll go through it in more detail. Obviously, the emphasis is on the action of God. Look at the action terms. God did, God did, God did, God spoke, God acted, God raised 21 times. Number two, the promises that were given to the fathers, to David, and so on. Promise is a theme. Number three, scriptures are fulfilled. Even in the rejection of Messiah, scripture is fulfilled. The scripture cannot be broken. And number four, the point of all this 
was to bring freedom to Israel that never happened or could not happen under Moses. True freedom has come to Israel through Christ. Here's a couple over here that I want to talk. Just uh, another observation, jumping down to verse 41, the second half of verse 41, where Paul is quoting from Habakkuk 1, it looks like. And it says, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So uh, it just seems ironic. He's literally fulfilling prophecy himself while he's using prophecy to describe (laughs) what they won't believe. Yeah. That God would send yet more prophets to speak to them. Rich back here had something. Can we conclude from this sermon that God is sovereign? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> can we? Can we also conclude from this sermon that man is sinful? That it, when he makes a decision, it usually comes out sinful. Yeah, man can, rebels. God promises. God acts. So you know, my question is then: okay. Is why do modern evangelists nowadays? always make the conclusion that God would never do this. He would never force himself on an individual. It's up to the individual to find room in his heart for Jesus when the heart is deceitful, right? So how, if God is sovereign and man is not sovereign, in fact, man is actually sinful, why is it man's, why is it the conclusion that salvation is unto man? Why do we pull the trigger on our own salvation? Or why do we feel like we can and why do learned and trained ministers preach this? Well, a good question. I think that there's been people like John MacArthur and others pointing out that we need to get back to biblical gospel preaching. And it's not about man and man's abilities and man's powers. It's about God's action and God's promises and faith alone. God does the work. And he uses the means of the gospel preached. And he's the one who grants repentance and faith. But he uses means. Uh, I would say this, Rich. If we just preach the word of God for what it says, we'll end up preaching what's right because God cannot lie. The, The bane of pop evangelicalism is the topical sermon. And I say that as one who just preached one. <laughs> I don't do it very often, but it was on, I did that overview from Hebrews on access to God. But we do that now and again because I'm not saying you can't have a topic, but what changed my life was the decision to preach through the Bible. And that decision was made in 1983 by God's grace. And I've been doing it ever since. Because I can't skip things I don't like. All right? If you don't allow the Bible to tell us how to preach, then we'll end up with man-centered philosophy. What man's going to do. Yes, Paul. In verse 28, it says, Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they, meaning the the people, asked Pilate to have him executed. Right. um, uh, although this is uh, another sign of how sinful man can be, this also shows God's providential activity because this fueled the, res- the crucifixion, therefore the resurrection, therefore all that. So in a way, you could say through, uh, through this, uh, God's providential will was taking place. Well, absolutely. 
and his promises being fulfilled. You might think of it this way. If you read through the Old and New Testaments, you see the continuity. continuity. How often do humans reject God's ways? Okay, and reject God's choice. You see it in the wilderness wanderings where they reject Moses. And you see how often the prophets were persecuted. Look at the story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, never had anything positive to say about what was going on, but he was speaking the truth. Yes, Peter. Yeah, Bob, just a quick review here. You you listed four points of this. You said what God did, promises being fulfilled. Number four was freedom to Israel. What was number three? Uh, this, well, the scriptures, and, and that everything is pointing to Messiah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the scriptures point to Jesus being the true Messiah. The promises fulfilled, yes. Messianic promises fulfilled. Yes, Brian. Uh, the reason I brought up Stephen was because when Paul and Barnabas leave, they are begged by the people to come back the following Sabbath. Whereas with Stephen, they killed him. So I yeah. think it's the, the, the church leaders, the, the general people, they wanted to hear it, but it was the church leaders, the high priests that couldn't handle what was being said. Well, see, part of the uh, drama in the book of Acts is Jerusalem. There may be a little foreshadow with John Mark leaving and going back. The problems were in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was the one that, see, if you go back to Luke, Acts, go back to Luke, and Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And you see the, the pathos, the how often I would gather you. I hope I'm still in Luke here. I'm just going from my memory. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem was, kills the prophets. And uh, Eric, uh, could you find that and, and, and be ready to read it for us? And so there's this Jesus coming to the city of David, the place of promise. And there's this uh, emotion and passion. And they reject the prophets they reject him and this is what happens now if you go to Stephen who was amongst those who were so hateful toward Stephen Saul of Tarsus so there's another message here and that is God changes people's lives enemies can become worshipers Yeah, there's irony, there's repentance, there's change, there's hope, there's the fulfillment of Scripture. Because I think when later when Paul said that he was the chief of sinners, he's he's somebody who was part of the whole establishment that was rejecting the prophets and Messiah and the evidence and everything else, who was confronted by the resurrected Christ and converted. To your point, Rich, conversion is an act of God, but he uses means. And God wants us to preach the gospel. Yes, go ahead. And the passage that came to my mind was where he weeps over Jerusalem. 1941, he says, when he drew near the... Luke. 
Yeah, this is Luke 19:41. Okay. It says, when he drew near the city, he saw it and wept over it, saying, would you, even you, had you known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden for your eyes, hidden from your eyes. And then he talks about that they missed the time of his visitation. Oh, he, they, they did not recognize the day of visitation. Yeah. That's another theme in Luke, Acts' visitation. Right. Is, that, is that the one you were thinking of, Bob? Well, that one is a good one. Okay. <laughs> I may have been conflating Matthew, and I, I didn't have it in my nose. Uh, I'm trying to go right out of my memory. But it did happen. But that's true. They did not recognize the day of visitation. So Luke Acts is definitely about the visitation of God. Now, I think it's ironic in some ways when I see the emails I get from the Apostles and Prophets movement. They're talking about some great move of God and heaven coming to earth and all this stuff. But they don't even want to hear the truth. They just want any kind of miracle or feeling or manifestation, however they can get it. And here's the irony about the visitation. Visitation can be the worst thing you could ever ask for if you're not prepared to get right with God. What happens when God visits? A few are saved and an awful lot of people die. I preached on that when I was talking about access to God. Remember the mountain? That if they even touched it, they had to be stoned. And, and they, they finally said, no, Moses, you go. We can't take this. We're going to die. Moses, you go talk to God. We can't deal with this. And when Jesus came, there's a visitation, but a lot of people end up judged. Yes, Aaron. Um, you know, you've pointed this out before. The term visitation is the, the noun episcope. Yeah, where so we, we get, get our word for episcopal. Exactly. And episcopal is translated as an elder. So an elder is one who visits on behalf of God. So go to the book of James. What happens when people are sick, you're to go visit them. That's the idea. Why? Because you're representing God, showing that God's favor is still upon them. So this idea of God's visitation, Bob has pointed out, either you're saved or you're damned at his visitation. A visitation means something cataclysmic can be happening. It's something, when you go back through all these visitations, what's always the same? Some people... Of, of remnant are saved, and a lot of people are judged. Yeah, exactly. Actually, a mishta, a, 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 one of these suppers where we're dining with the king, it is a visitation. Okay, we're remembering his death until he comes. And the, and the future visitation is going to be really bad. So, to those people who are teaching false doctrine and are not gospel preaching, who are demanding a visitation, I would say to you, be careful what you ask for. Okay? Get back to true repentance and faith and trusting the finished work of Christ. Now, let me say one more thing. I I decided to do this last night when I wanted to get a good overview before I start preaching through the sermon slowly. The, The truth of the gospel and what we need to preach about isn't what man does for God, it's what God does for man. What man does is always a problem. Okay? You can't expect the fallen sinners are going to know what's best for them. What they want is wrong. And I wrote about this, I wrote article after article, and finally you wrote two books about it, and I debated about it when I was in seminary, and I've debated about it publicly, and it still is not 
getting any traction because the churches are wanting to use sociology and data gathering about focus groups and potential churched people to find out what the sinners want so they can design a church that are going to be have everything that the sinners want without confronting them about the gospel. You will never ever go to one of your neighborhood surveys and say to people, this is what they ask, if you were to go to church, what would you want in church? Well, I wanted to, I don't want any long sermons. I want it to be fun. I want great music. And I want programs and a few things like that. Are they ever going to say, please tell us about the truth of Christ and the fact that we're facing judgment and if we don't repent, we're going to be damned. Well, they're never going to say that unless they happen to come by my house. (laughs) I told you that story when that happened. Somebody was going to start a secret church. I I, I spent a lot of time sick this last eight years recovering from being in hospitals. And they knocked on the door, and here they were doing their survey. And I said, uh, will the gospel be preached? No. No. So, dear saints, we need to have our passion be about what God has done, what God has said, what God has promised, and how we can always trust him because he keeps his promises. The same is true for you. The human heart is deceitful. Jeremiah says, who can know it? Only God can help us. We all have difficulties. I'm not belittling the fact that people have problems and needs. But I'm saying that if we really want answers, we've got to accept what God has said. And we really need him to intervene. God knows the heart. Does anybody besides God know the heart? I have to. I email many, many times every single week to CIC readers who contact me and tell them that what they need is the promises of God, because everybody has problems. And some some people think, well, I'll just take a whole bunch of time off and sit and contemplate what I what's wrong with me and what where I where I'm at in life. And I always say, I advise against that. The more time you spend contemplating yourself, the more depressed you will get. I can't think of a more horrible topic to think about than self. Why? I'm not saying we're all just as bad as we could ever be. It's just that the thing that gives us hope and joy is the promise of God and, and being with things that get us outside of ourselves, the family of God, the people of God, the word of God, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the things that God does for us is about what he does. Sitting around contemplating self to fix anything is not going to work. It's going to make us very, very depressed because we can't fix most of what's wrong. Almost all of the big problems in life are intractable. We can't fix them. But God keeps his promises. 
So here it says he chose our fathers. He made the people great during their stay in Egypt. Remember that? The promise that they're going to be sojourners, they're going to be in, or they're going to be in Egypt. He made them into a nation while they were slaves to another nation. Read the Exodus story again. Read about Moses and the Ark of Bulrushes and uh, how God used providentially what happened in order to make a people out of nothing. How he brought them out with a mighty hand through the miraculous works. And then when they got out there, he had to put up with them. The term put up with is only found here in the New Testament. means the Greek etymology would mean to bear with manners or endure their conduct. Well, we've read enough about the wilderness wanderers to know that's exactly what happened. And this is echoed into the New Testament. If you want to, I think maybe we covered this a while back, but isn't John 6 amazing in that regard? Remember how God provided miraculous manna in the wilderness when he was putting up with them? And they finally hated it. He said, can't you give us some meat? And so on. Now, what happens in John 6 is an echo. It even uses the same Greek words out of the, they're using Septuagint for grumbling. And when they grumbled after Jesus multiplied the bread, the loaves, and so on, in John 6, the words remind us of the murmuring, that's that word murmur, gangudzo, I think in the Greek. They murmur, they complain, they grumbled. Human condition doesn't change, it's still the same. The answer doesn't change either, it's still the same. The God sending his bread, and Jesus is the bread of life. And we need him, and we need his broken body and his shed blood. So the audience shared his premises, and they needed to hear what he had to say. Now let's go to verse 19 and 20 of Acts 13. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So this is a brief overview. Now the scholars have debated whether the 450 years references what happened up until the the judges or what happened from then on. But I think the best reading is that the 450 years is about the whole time in Egypt, then the wilderness, and then the early conquest of Canaan. Uh, Dr. Peterson says that the TNIV, and I think the New American Standard has the same rendering, is helpful because it shows that the reference is to the whole time spent in Egypt, the wilderness, and the initial period of conquest of Canaan. So that's how I would interpret it. I think that's what Paul was talking about. The theme in this speech is about God, his promises, and his actions to fulfill his promises. The New Testament Authors claimed that all this led up to Jesus, the promised son of David, the Messiah, and that God kept his promises through having his own 
only begotten, firstborn son, come, be rejected, and crucified, but yet raised on the third day. That's what God did. And that's the Christian gospel. And that should be preached, I believe, consistently in every single church. And I think I've come finally, uh, all along I've been saying this, but it's so cemented now that I'm absolutely sure of it. The reason we see what we do in our contemporary church history situation, what providentially is happening, uh, I was talking with some internet friends and thinking about we're, we're, we're getting the second book republished just now. It's somebody, amazingly, somebody uh, that I didn't know before has gone to all kinds of work and on our daughter to, to get the second book republished. So it'll be coming out soon because we were out of them. But I, I, I need to understand what is the church? And we're going to see that as, we, as we've been going through Ephesians 2. What is the church? Who is the church? What's the boundaries of the church? What's the message of the per- church? What's the foundation of the church? And what are the definitions given in the New Testament about the church and the church's leadership? And I can't come to any conclusion, but the church consists of all those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, be they Jew or Gentile, wherever they came from, whoever they were in the past, it's all not the key issue. It's who do we know now and what uh, is our hope? Is our hope in Christ and his blood? That is the church. And there is not a single inkling that I can find thinking about this and studying it and taking a lot of courses on church history, I don't see any reason to create institutions that we try to make self-promulgating going forward in the future. I believe that the big confusion and problem is that we have things called church that are actually simply religious institutions that no longer even consist of the redeemed. And you can talk about why that happened. But here's what I, I can't quite know who to talk to about this because most of my evangelical friends on the internet can't, they think I'm, I don't know what they think. <laughs> but somebody will say, look what's happening, look what's happening. Some horrible person's going to be in charge of whatever, Southern Baptist. So there's been all these debates. And I look at that and I look at it totally different. And I said, to a couple people, is there some reason why we should have a Southern Baptist convention? I'm just, I'm not picking on them. But is there some compelling biblical reason? We've got to have this big institution and let's take our most talented people and our best fundraisers and put them in charge of it. And we're going to have this incorporate missionaries and Buildings and organizations and huge things, and all of this is going to be the great thing, and it's going to preserve the true gospel. And it never does. Eventually, the grandchildren or great grandchildren of the founders 
are the talented ones and the fundraisers and the administrators and the people with clout. And they end up in charge of it. And because they're not redeemed, they're not born again because the election is not genetic. They have a whole different set of ideas. And the creeds and councils don't do it either. There's, now there's debate in some of the bastions of reformed conservatism whether it's okay for churches to have gay marriage. And so they have to debate that. Why? Because the election's not genetic. Do you think that you are really a Christian because your grandfather was? Or you came from the Netherlands? <laughs> Mom and I grew up around people that from the Netherlands and uh, they're very good at preserving their culture and their creeds and councils, but does that make somebody a Christian? Here's my, I'll, I'm trying this out on you, and you can respond. I think the church is always organic in the sense that as God saves people in different places on the scene of history, and they gather together under the means of grace, that's the church. That's the local church. The church universal is all of the redeemed wherever they may be. And I don't think there's any good reason to create a political entity that's supposed to preserve the church. In fact, I would argue, and I'm hoping to write a book about this, that it's the worst thing we can do. Because however many controls you put on it, no matter how big of a stick you have to beat everybody, You swear to this creed, bam, 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 beat, 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 beat. Or you're a wicked person, you're a bad Christian. And we're going to create this social strata that you want to be part of, because if you're not, you'll be rejected like the cults do. Why do all these people stay Mormon? The whole thing is stupid, it's absurd, it has no validity. And you couldn't even argue that it does. But they do it and they stay there and they go back and they go back and they go back. Can't somebody say, wait a second, why are we doing this? Where is this planet? How can Jesus be the half-brother of Satan? How can this be and where the Book of Mormon has no historical reference? Why do they do it? So see, we could create this and make people do it under the name of Christ. They may get to do it for generations for fear of being rejected by their parents and their grandparents and being bad people. But are they going to be Christian? Is that going to be the church? Is that going to be the church, the foundation of which is the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ? Is that going to be it? Dear ones, it won't. What we have is whatever God's done in our lives On the scene of history, we have each other, we have the scriptures, we have the Lord. That's the church. So thank you for putting up with my little uh, idea. But uh, I believe that I need to somehow articulate that because it'll save a lot of pain because we don't need to spend our sorrows and money and tears trying to preserve something that's an institution because we think we got to. We don't. We don't need an institution. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul and his preaching. 
Can we pray that the word of God would go forth even in our midst, and that people would be redeemed? Pray for Pastor Eric as he preaches to us, that you be with him, guide his thoughts and his words, that we might and help us as we to listen to the teaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear saints.